Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. Today's episode is sponsored by the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and made possible by a grant from the Abbott Nutrition Health Institute. For as long as people have been studying nutrition, maybe longer, there's been a question about food and longevity. Everyone wants to live a long, healthy life. Can that be achieved just by changing our diet? Is there a magic formula for a diet that will reverse the effects of aging? There isn't, of course. At least not one that we know of. But that doesn't stop people from looking for it. And all that looking inspires plenty of people of varying levels of scrupulousness to create things for them to find. Google the words anti-aging diet and you'll get no fewer than a million results, with teasers like, add years to your life with these seven anti-aging superfoods, the anti-aging diet that will help you drop a decade, and five types of anti-aging foods you should already be eating. Now, any serious nutrition scientist will tell you that these kinds of stories are overhyped clickbait at best, advertisements for snake oil at worst. But what is the truth of it? What do we actually know? Is there a way to make yourself live longer by changing what you eat? It's a complicated question that was addressed at the conference Aging and Nutrition, Novel Approaches and Techniques, held at the Academy on December 2nd of last year in partnership with the Orntreich Foundation for the Advancement of Science. And to attack it, you need to break it down into several more fundamental questions, each just as complex. To begin with, what accounts for lifespan? Why do some people live longer than others? Here's Dr. Nicholas Strostrup, a research fellow in the Department of Systems Biology at Harvard Medical School. One obvious um, explanation for how long we live is, is that our genes determine it. And, and clearly, if you're a mouse, you know, you're not going to live 100 years. And um, if you're a human, you're more likely to. And that has to do with the genes that we're made out of. But genetics clearly isn't the whole story. And we know that by studying identical twins, also known as monozygotic twins, people who have exactly the same DNA. You actually find the monozygotic twins only a weakly correlated lifespan. Uh, the variance that's explained by inheritance, uh, looking at these twins, about 25% of the variance in lifespan can be explained by, by genes. You know, people with good alleles of these genes don't necessarily have long lives, and people who have all the bad genes um, can still live a very long time. So if it's not genetic diversity, um, you know, what else could it be? It could be environment. But environment isn't the whole story either. As we've seen from studies where we've completely sequestered laboratory animals, sealing them off entirely from any environmental factors. But you can, if you go into laboratory strains, you can actually start really trying to you know, keep mice in these like uh, sealed chambers where they don't even get smells from the outside um, and such in a constant temperature and whatnot. But when, when you do that, you actually don't decrease um, the variation much um, in, in lifespan. So what is it then? Epigenetics? Something else? The answer is yes. It's all of these things. Well, I mean, there are a lot of ways to die, right? So um, <laughs> eliminating any of them will expand lifespan by a bit, sort of by definition. Uh, the problem is it's a, a multi-scale systems biology problem. You know, the tissues could have, you know, uh, you know compositional changes. Um, the cells could have different cell biologic properties. And you can see, you know, different telomere links and, and stuff like this. And so essentially variation between individuals at each of these sort of levels of biological abstraction are all contributing simultaneously in complex interacting ways to determine uh, lifespan. And so the question is, well, how, how can you do controlled experiments in, in something this complicated? 
That's a difficult question that faces anyone who's doing any kind of medical research. The body is amazingly complex, and everything is connected to everything else. One way researchers often tackle it is to work in the other direction. Instead of starting by understanding a biological process and then designing a drug or treatment plan that affects it, they'll start with a drug or treatment that seems to work and then try to figure out why it works. And one thing that seems to work in lab animals when it comes to increased lifespan, even though we don't really know why, is what's called dietary restriction. Basically what the rest of us would call dieting limiting the amount of food an animal is allowed to eat every day. Here's Dr. Arlen Richardson of the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. Uh, it's been known for over 80 years that uh, reducing food intake increases the lifespan of mice, rats, and so on. But it was also shown to work in uh, dogs and more recently in rhesus monkeys. The results of these studies are downright strange, though. They don't really make logical sense. They show, for instance, that short-term dietary restriction can have an effect much later in life. There's something, for instance, called the crowded litter effect that seems to show that baby mice that come from large litters tend to get less milk as infants because there are more siblings fighting for it. And then they go on to live longer than mice from small litters, even though they all eat the same amount of solid food after they're weaned. And some studies have shown similar effects even in adulthood. Eating less for a period of time seems to have a beneficial effect on longevity, even if you go back to eating the same amount afterwards that you had before. These changes persist after dietary restriction is uh, uh, discontinued. It's a strange thing, because it's very unusual for a biological effect to be delayed like that. Dr. Richardson and some others have a theory that these strange effects may have something to do with a process called DNA methylation. Our DNA is basically a long ladder built out of thousands of blocks, each block being one of four fairly simple chemicals called bases, adenine, thymine, guanine, or cytosine. When DNA is methylated, a methyl group an extra lump of carbon and hydrogen is stuck on to some of those last kinds of block, cytosine bases. This can change the way your cells function by preventing some of the sections of our DNA, called genes, from turning on or off the way they normally would. And so that modifies that cytosine, and it doesn't affect how the genome will read. In other words, it still is going to be read as a cytosine, but when the molecules come in, the transcription factors come in to turn on or turn off genes, that methylation can interfere with that process. And so, and so you've essentially, through an epigenetic mechanism, you have essentially changed the gene response as though you had altered the genome itself. Another interesting wrinkle is that some of these same effects can be produced by the use of a drug called rapamycin, a macrolide compound that's most often prescribed to surgical patients because it helps the body not reject things like stents and kidney transplants. Now, no one is exactly sure why this is, but a number of studies have shown that it can also extend the lifespan of lab animals in a way similar to dietary restriction. Here's Dr. Matt Caberlain of the University of Washington. 
effective. It's been shown by dozens of labs now to increase lifespan in every organism, laboratory organism, where it's been tested, including yeast, worms, flies, and mice. Um, and also importantly, it doesn't just extend lifespan, but it seems to really delay the aging process. So every age-related disease or age-related decline in function where rapamycin has been studied in mice, it shows a beneficial effect. So it's not just lifespan. It really does seem to be improving health span in mice. And these initial positive results tend to support the DNA methylation theory of dietary restriction, because rapamycin seems to also have a methylating effect with similar results. Rapamycin um, is a specific inhibitor of uh, the mTOR pro protein, so TOR stands for target of rapamycin. This is sort of a central nutrient response and sensing uh, pathway in the cell. In fact, it's as, as Arlen alluded to in his talk, it's one of the main things that dietary restriction does to, to increase lifespan and promote health is turn down TOR. So in some ways, rapamycin is a drug that mimics some of the effects of dietary restriction. This methylation connection is just a hypothesis, though, and it doesn't explain one of the strangest findings of those dietary restriction studies some of which suggests that short-term restriction actually works better than longer-term restriction, that the beneficial effects are increased by just restricting diet for a short period of time and then going back to letting the animal eat as much as it wants. And truly, no one knows why that is. Here's Dr. Richardson. This is one of those things that came up. We can't explain it around DNA methylation. Yeah, I, I have no idea what's happening. We totally, you know, my thought was is that when we take dietary restriction off, it'll either stay the same or go down or disappear. I had, and what's surprising of the genes that we've looked at thus far is, I wouldn't say a majority, but a large number are showing this accelerate, and I have, I have no explanation for what's going on. Whatever's going on, it needs to be studied more. Here's Dr. Vera Gorbonova of the University of Rochester. When you apply calorie restriction, then remove it, uh, it may give rise to very unexpected and possibly beneficial effects. And this is something that the area of nutrition, which I think hasn't really been explored enough, so people either apply long-term restriction or they don't. And, you know, this kind of intermittent fasting paradigm, I think, received relatively little attention. But here's the thing. It's going to be really hard to get definitive answers about any of this stuff when it comes to human nutrition, which is, of course, the subject we really ultimately care about, because it's really, really tricky to study anything in people. Mice, worms, fruit flies, those we can keep in really controlled conditions, determine exactly what they're eating and when, and basically do any kind of test we like on the effects. These animals also have relatively short lifespans, anything from a few days to a few years. And so we can quickly see if a particular intervention has had an effect on that lifespan. People don't live in a lab. We can't control or track them 24 hours a day, and they might live 80 or 90 years. Dr. Matt Caberlane of the University of Washington presented an interesting idea at this conference for a new kind of study, one that uses animals that are as close to us as they could be without being us. Not genetically close now, but in every other way close. They eat our food, live in our houses, and share our lives. We're talking, of course, about dogs. So dogs age a lot like we do. 
They've got a pretty sophisticated uh, medical care system, much like we do. The one that I think is probably most important, though, is the dogs, pet dogs, share our en environment. So show of hands, how many people in this room have a dog or have had a dog in the past? So about half of you at least, right? So you, don't, you can put your hands down. You don't have to raise your hand, but I bet at least some of you, your dog has spent the night in your bed, right? It's hard to imagine a laboratory animal that would share your environment to that extent, right? So this is something we cannot recapitulate in laboratory systems that we can capture in uh, pet dogs. And the lifespan of a dog makes it possible to begin an intervention when the dog is a healthy adult and then track the effects all the way to the end of its life and to do so within a reasonable time frame. Dogs age very much like we do. They get almost all of the same age-related diseases that people do as they're getting older, but they do it a lot faster, right? We've all heard of this idea that, you know, seven dog years to one human year. That's not, that's not a perfect equivalency, but it's pretty close. And so one of the things that means is that if we have an intervention that we think is going to slow the aging process, delay age-related disease, maybe extend lifespan, if you can actually start that treatment in middle age, we can actually know the answer in pet dogs in three to five years. That's a very reasonable time frame for actually doing a, a veterinary clinical trial to assess whether an intervention impacts aging. As a first run of this experimental paradigm, Dr. Caberlin and his team have done the small-scale test of rapamycin in middle-aged dogs with promising results. This is a trial to test whether this drug, rapamycin, can actually impact healthy longevity in pet dogs. So this is a study that was done in the Seattle area. Uh, we had 40 dogs come into the clinic, and the dogs had to be middle-aged, so at least six years old, and they had to be medium to large size. And, and the reason for the size criteria is big dogs age faster. So because this is a study where we're going to be doing this for a limited amount of time, we thought it was important to have a population that was going to undergo some, uh, some component of the aging process in the time frame of the study. The other important criteria is they, they can't be sick. So this is a study of healthy aging. So they, they couldn't have any significant pre-existing health conditions. And this initial study showed similar results in dogs to what had been shown earlier in mice and other animals. It's kind of striking how similar the effects are that we observed in the dogs compared to what's been previously um, shown in mice. Keep in mind, though, that this was only a small cohort of dogs. They only treated them for 10 weeks, and they really only tracked one outcome, cardiac function. I definitely want to make the point this is a small cohort, needs to be replicated. I have no clue whether these dogs, where they seem to have improvements in cardiac function, are getting any of the other benefits of rapamycin that we've seen in mice. We're following these dogs. It's probably asking a bit much to expect that a 10-week treatment uh, in middle age in dogs is going to lead to significant improvements in, in broad, broadly in health, but we are following these dogs and keeping in touch with the owners, um, so maybe we'll be able to get at least a hint as to whether there's anything else going on. But it looks pretty promising um, in terms of the effects on cardiac functions. Next, his team will be moving on to larger studies using pet dogs. First, a series of expansions of the rapamycin trial, and then something even more ambitious an international trial that hopes to help us better understand some of those large underlying questions that we talked about at the beginning of the show.
And the goal here is to really understand at the highest resolution possible what are the environmental and genetic factors that influence healthy longevity in dogs. And so our, our goal is to enroll 10,000 plus dogs from around the United States, hopefully around the world, capture their veterinary health records, owner surveys to learn about their environment, genetics, epigenetics, microbiome, metabolome, all the kinds of omics um, assays that you can envision, and actually answer those questions. What is it that influences why some dogs live a long time, don't get disease, age well, and other dogs die early. Dr. Richardson's team is also hoping to expand their focus, perhaps by studying interventions that combine rapamycin with dietary restriction. There are, uh, in certain cases, additive effects. So we would like to actually, uh, and I'm setting up to submit a proposal where we would do a combination of rapamycin and dietary restriction because while I think there are some things that are similar certainly with respect to autophagy and mTOR that are being affected similarly, there are other things that are quite different that are being affected and so I have the hunch that there may be a chance that we might see an additive effect by doing a combination of these. And these were just two of many research subjects that were discussed at this conference. Dr. Gorbunova's team, for instance, is studying the effects of hyaluronin, a kind of acid that forms in our cell membranes. It's not really understood yet, but it seems to have a role in the fact that some kinds of rodents, specifically naked mole rats, are more resistant to cancer than other kinds, like mice. If we do the same perturbations with naked mole rat cell and also abolish the production of hyaluronin, either by down-regulating the synthase or by overexpressing the enzyme that degrades it, so then naked mole rat cells started forming tumors. So that was really the key experiment for us to see that uh, if you remove hyalur ability to produce hyaluronin from naked mole rat, so it becomes as susceptible as a mouse to cancer. Could a diet that encourages hyaluronin production help healthy aging? So of course the question is, you know, what if you add uh, to mice, uh, you know, the ability to produce high molecular weight hyaluronin, is it going to be helpful? And of course the long term would be like, can it benefit humans as well? Dr. Jan van Dersen of the Mayo Clinic is taking yet another approach by looking at cell senescence a thing that happens to some of the cells in our body, causing them to stop reproducing. So if a stem cell uh, undergoes uh, senescence or permanent cell cycle arrest, then that cell will not be able to engage in uh, tissue repair and homeostasis. Uh, clearly, they uh, accumulate uh, with aging, uh, we know that, and um, they have been associated um, now with lifespan. Um, but also with um, a number, they're, they're found at, at, at sites of pathology. And it's been shown that there's a strong connection between the kinds of stress that causes cells to become senescent and outcomes that have also been connected to an unhealthy diet, things like clogged arteries. Could a diet that specifically targets the slowing of senescence be useful for healthier aging? Again, we don't know, but it's an interesting idea. One thing that's clear is that we're going to need more research because there's an enormous gap between what people are being sold about connections between nutrition and aging and what science actually knows. People are never going to stop looking for the fountain of youth, and it's crucial that nutrition science keeps pace with nutrition myth. Perhaps through research like this, we can actually start bridging that gap in a meaningful way.
Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Carrie Kasten and administrative and scientific oversight by Murray McLean. The quotes used in this episode were excerpted from the event Aging and Nutrition, Novel Approaches and Techniques, held at the Academy on December 2nd, 2016, and presented by the Academy's Sackler Institute for Nutrition Science and by the Orentreich Foundation for the Advancement of Science. Thanks to the experts who appeared in this episode, Dr. Nicholas Strostrup of Harvard University, Dr. Arlen Richardson of the University of Oklahoma, Dr. Matt Caberlane of the University of Washington, Dr. Vera Gorbunova of the University of Rochester, and Dr. Jan van Dersen of the Mayo Clinic. For more information about this and other Academy events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter and the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.